Good evening and a warm welcome. This is A Reason for Hope and we are with you live for the next hour to receive your questions on God's Word, the Bible. That's right, if you have questions about the Bible, maybe a verse or a passage of Scripture, maybe Christian living or world events from a Christian perspective, really any honest question that you have, as long as you know we're going to be delving into the Bible to find those answers, that's what we're all about here. And the show is guided by your questions, so please do send them in as you follow along on the various platforms. Get in early. We often run out of time. You have such great questions that you send in, so get them in early. We'd love to navigate all those with you. My name is Dave Robson. I'll be hosting today and fielding those questions as they come on in. Am I kind of like a quarterback, would you say? Yes. Really? You are a quarterback in the show. Yeah, that's probably the closest thing to a quarterback (laughs) I've ever been or ever will be. Yes, I'm the quarterback. Finally, yeah. I've got picked. <laughs> yeah, the European equivalent, uh, whoever is the head of a scrimmage in rugby, oh, so I think yeah, close. I it's don't a, know. kind of a group effort. <laughs> it, yeah, I should know the uh, the soccer terms, but I really don't. But anyway, <laughs> with us today is also Pastor Sean Richards. How are you doing today? Good. Uh, noting a uh, very interesting uh, opportunity, Bo Let's joining us again. You can introduce him in a moment. Yeah. But, uh, you know, he's very well-renowned well-known and renowned for his mastery of the guitar and i have full respect for it because i had the hardest time learning how to play musical instruments i've tried like <laughs> six i've tried you know the flute the cornet piano no matter wind string you name the instrument every time it just ends up being percussion <laughs> and that works too especially these days it always sounds different though does it yeah the flute made a hollow sound <laughs> Well, as you mentioned also with us, uh, Pastor Bo Willette, who's the assistant pastor here at Calvary Christian Fellowship. How are you doing today? Good. It's good. good to be here with you and with Sean once again. Yeah, it's been a while. And we've been praying for you and your family. We know we you. you know, your mom passed away recently, and yep. we were certainly praying and all aware of that. So. Yeah, it's hard to believe it's already been a week. Has it really? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's, wait, let's see, where are we at? Yeah, I think it's already been a week. Is it Tuesday yeah. today? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, a week and a day. Wow. Yeah. Um, well, absolutely. But, yeah. you know, what I could say about that is uh, the church has been awesome. Um, you know, over the years, 30 years of being in a church, there's so much education that goes on. Mm. And so many people have fed into me over those 30 years. And it's always in preparation, you know, preparing you for trials and difficult things that come your way. Right. And and uh, I I certainly felt very equipped. Wow. You know, so just super grateful. Glad my mom's not in a, a cancer-filled tent anymore. Yeah. And uh, um, absolutely. I mean, I don't think anybody wants to see a loved one just continue no. with a in such a, you know, rough situation. So, absolutely. yeah. So blessed to be on the show. Always wonderful. And, you know, a lot of people out there, the holidays aren't really an exciting time for them because right. a, lot of, a lot of people have had people that they've you know, lost. That's and, right. And that's the word you, you hear a lot too when someone passes away is loss. Yeah. And um and I tend to like to flip that around a little bit mm-hmm. and see it as gain. Mm-hmm. Um uh, just because I the way I read the Bible, the way I understand it. Yeah. Um but I understand that, you know, yeah. you you lose people, you you're grieving there. And so um yeah, maybe we can talk about that later on in the show too. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So yeah. I've- an interesting subject to delve into. Well, yeah, it's great to be here with you guys. And uh, once again, in case this is your, your first time with us, there's multiple ways you can join us. And if you're seeing us and hearing us, then obviously you've found a way. If, if you're listening on the radio, on Reach Radio, 
welcome. Drive safely if you're driving, and just know that you're listening to our last show pre-recorded. But send your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. That's questionsforhope all spelled out at gmail.com, and we'll endeavor to get to your question on the next show. And consider joining us on one of our platforms that are actually uh, live when, when you can, which would be at our website at calvarychristianfellowship.com. Follow the Watch Live tab, and you can see us there. There's a chat function right there. Also on Facebook, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. We have an app as well for your mobile device. Uh, also Roku and Apple TV. So look for Calvary Christian Fellowship and find the app there. On YouTube, we're at Questions for Hope. That is the name of the channel on YouTube, Questions for Hope. And once again, send your questions in on the chat function. I'll be monitoring those, multitasking over here. You'll see steam coming off the equipment. Um, taking, your, <laughs> taking your questions in, and uh, we would love to get to those. So again, any question, as long as you know, we're going to delve into the Bible to find those answers. So it might be a specific verse, maybe Christian living, maybe you're going through something in your life. You would so much like to honor the Lord, but not too sure what you should do. Well, well, we'd love to help you find those answers in the Word today. And thank you once again for, for joining us. Well, Bo, you're here. Would you like to pray for us? Sure. Go any further? Absolutely. That'd be great. Let's do it. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity that we can be on the show today. Uh, We thank you that you are a a wonderful God and your your truths are so amazingly rich. And we pray that you would give us an anointing to be able to share those things um, and that you would be glorified in it all. In Jesus' name, Mm -hmm. amen. 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 We we were talking right before the show that you had a question come up the other day. Yeah. Um, you mentioned Sean about you know musicianship and you're a musician, Bo, as a, as am I, one of the worship leaders here at Calvary. Um, but the question was, can and should Christians listen to any kind of music? You know, secular music. Should, is that something we should boycott or avoid? And I know, <laughs> yeah. I know you grew up with some pretty heavy music too. So yeah, and it's a big question. Yeah, you know for sure. I'm gonna I'm gonna see how Sean answers this one, and then maybe I'll just kind of go from there. Yeah. Okay, that's that's not a layup. I don't know what is after your declaration of musicianship. Oh, you said uh, something we discussed before the broadcast. I was thinking of something else. Anyway, when we're talking about the question of music, it's obviously any form of input. So the first place that I'd obviously go to is 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 3, where there was this controversy going on in the early church about food sacrificed to idols, because this is associated with something not just pagan, but in general, not Christ. Should I avoid that? And obviously there are passages in 1 Corinthians and Romans that deal with it not being anything in of itself, but for the sake of conscience and those around you, you should consider that. But as far as on an individual basis, which is the crux of this question, you need to ask yourself what it's ultimately pointing you to. So noting Paul's point in 1 Timothy chapter 4, addressing food, but we can apply it more broadly to anything that we take into our bodies, He said, these things are sanctified, literally cleansed and set aside for a new purpose by the word of God and prayer. Now, I'm sure we could go around the table here. It is round, so there's probably some ease in that. Uh, In (laughs) mentioning non-Christian, or at least not intended by the singer, Christian songs, and being able to derive biblical truths from it, but also noting as well the simple fact that God created sound, among other forms of energy, and being able to say, hey, there's something beautiful in this. There's something that reflects or expresses the glory of God. 
So that would be the question is when it comes to the impact it's having on your relationship with God, mm. is it a net positive or is it a net negative? Is it something you fall back into to just kind of process emotions and be in that neutral zone? Or is it something that you can genuinely associate in your heart with the Lord? And I think if that's the case, then regardless of the intent of the producer, the impact it's having on you is a positive. Now, that's where we get into the Romans and 1 Corinthians passages, which can be asked at another time. But dealing with that whole issue and concern people have and saying, how is it impacting you? Well, I'd say closer to Jesus, even for ironic reasons, is a good thing. Now, if on the other hand, uh, people you know, around you are stumbled by it or godly influences in your life for saying, you think this is bringing you closer to Christ, but I'm not seeing a lot of good fruit, that's another thing to consider. But when it comes to anything you take in, be it music, be it meat, be it <laughs> anything else that starts with M in the context of smells, I don't know, <laughs> any senses that we have that take in information or stimulation, it can lead us closer to or away <clears throat> from Jesus. There, I am a firm disbeliever in the concept of entertainment neutrality for those of you who know me. So the point being made would be just that. Uh, anything more you'd want to say, Bo? I could say a lot about this subject. Um, this is kind of one of my wheelhouse subjects. Mm. It's definitely I can jump on a pastor's soapbox and just kind of ramble and ramble, meander. I'm a good meander mm. with this topic. Um, I think, like, uh, I find that what you and uh, Pastor Peter Martin have done on the show at times, talking about this ideas is, is, is if is beauty um, objective mm -hmm. or is it subjective? I think that really is a beautiful, um, uh, maybe uh, a reason for hope to listen to mm. and kind of incorporate that into music too. The idea of is, does music, is, is there an objective right when mm. it comes to music? And, um, and so there's some wonderful philosophical ideas when it comes to music that I just find is so profound. Mm -hmm. I find it so unique that God is a unit, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and he creates music in um, a uh, unity diversity way as well. There's a very neat idea there. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's a little technical. And if you don't know music, you'd probably be like, Bo, you lost me, mm -hmm. you know, kind of thing. But, um, uh, I think of two passages, though, off the bat for any Christian that really is thinking about this topic of music and should I listen to this or should I listen to that. One of them's uh, the book of Philippians, chapter mm -hmm. 4, which says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything, if there's anything excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Uh, I think about that mm -hmm. as a passage to kind of think about. Mm -hmm. I also think of Colossians chapter 3, uh, verses 15, says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body be thankful, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and teach and admonish as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. So, you know, uh, music ha should have a place in our lives. Uh, one of them, obviously, is one of singing to God, and, and that means there has to be an adoration aspect in our walks with God, meaning mm -hmm. we have to learn to adore God. Um, when we think of music, 
we think of why do people write the songs they write? You know, usually there's an adoring or something that they enjoy or something that they find cool or something that they find unique or neat or, you know, it's something uh, in a sense praiseworthy to be able to write about. You know, if you're mm -hmm. writing music, you're, it's got to be something of some praiseworthiness, you know, no matter what it is, right? Um, and, and people, you know, take their time to, to put it to song. Um, and the Bible simply is making uh, a really important point that music should be something that we're utilizing to grow in our adoration of God. Mm. Um, and so using music to point us to God, to adore God, to think of God, to think of his uniqueness, to think of who he is in his being, um, meaning the uniqueness of the Christian deity, uh, of the Jewish deity, um, we should have songs that make us dwell and think and meditate on this amazing God that we have. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean that every song, when it says like whatever is pure, it doesn't mean every song is going to sound like Bach, you know, Brandenburg right. concertos or something like that. No, there is a, a a form of music that's spoken in Habakkuk, and you see it in the Psalms, mm. that it sounds a little more rougher. I mean, when you read this kind of tune, mm. this is a, a, it's the S word. Shigianoth. Shigianoth, mm. yeah. Something meant to inspire or spike adrenaline, if you will. Yeah, mm. and when you when you read those types of tunes, I, I would imagine <laughs> there's <laughs> yeah. something a little more... Um, a little more aggressive, yeah. You know, or horns and clashing cymbals. I mean, there's That's only pretty, so. <laughs> yeah, those are. Yeah, there's those only are. so pretty that can be. Yeah, and absolutely. I mean, you listen to Tchaikovsky or something like that, and it's like, whoa, man, that's right. pretty intense. Yeah, you know, and uh, it's a little different, you know, than you know Eric Satie in the classical world, which is like a minimalist uh, writer, French impressionistic, really mellow. A lot of people out there might know Claude Debussy. Mm. French impressionistic, but really sweet and beautiful little mm. melodies where Tchaikovsky is a little more bang, 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 yeah. you know? And, but so it, it's, it's not so much the sounds that are being produced, but it's where those sounds are moving you as mm. a human being, right. you know, what are they causing us to do? Who are they causing us to adore? Again, are, is it growing me intellectually? Yeah. Um, you know, some people like music because it's technical, mm. and that that technicality of the music um, really reverberates in their mind. Mm -hmm. It really challenges them, mm. and and so you know what I would say is, as a Christian, you look at that and you go, "Man, who is the the great you know architect of our planet? Mm. Who is the creator? Who's the one who?" you know, speaks and all this stuff comes into existence. Mm. And, you know, the technicality of our universe with mm. the, its laws and its functions naturally, you know, to me, music should, technical music should point you to the incredible technical aspects of God. Mm. And the simple uh, songs that are very melodic and very pretty, you know, should point us to the beauty of mm. God. You know, so um, I think, you know, whatever you're going to listen to, whether, you know, it's, I mean, if we put it more in modern music, right, whether it's the heavy metal kind of music or whether yeah. it's the more just regular kind of poppy, rocky kind of tune, 
And, you know, hey, you know, think of God. Mm. And, um, you know, hopefully it challenges you and makes you think of the Lord or think of his word. And, and uh, you know, it really moves you to thankfulness with God. I'd say if you're listening to something and it really doesn't point you to a thankful heart with God, um, then, you know, maybe it's, it's, it's just, you know, nothing. It's right. just it's not really producing anything, yeah. any fruit, you right. know, so to speak. Right. You know. Um, so that's kind of where I, I would kind of move any Christian. Yeah. There was a time in my early Christian life where I remember taking all my CDs. Yeah, I was back in CD days, or uh, not CDs, but tapes actually, tape mm-hmm. days, <laughs> where I, I remember just throwing them into the big trash bin. You know, I just yeah, took yeah. all of them and just chucked them in there, yeah. you know? And, and it was simply because I just couldn't seem to listen to them with a good framework. Yeah. You know, it, it, it doesn't matter what it was. It just never really pointed me in my mind to God. Right. And, um, but nowadays it's funny. It's like, I can listen to all kinds of music. I can hear it on the radio and I just go, I, and I think of God and I think of the uniqueness of God or maybe what it's saying. And I compare it to what God says in his word or, yeah. you know, so I find everything now goes in a sense before the throne, Right. you know, no matter what I'm listening to. Yeah. It's very good. Yeah. I mean, it, if I can comment, like you said, it, look at what fruit it's producing in you. Because there's there's no doubt that music moves you. You know, can move you a certain way. You know, I I yeah. mean, I even I work out with a trainer, and there's a certain kind of music he plays. And then sometimes after the session, he's like, "Listen to this guitar," and it's an acoustic guitar thing. And it's like, why don't we listen to that during the training session? Well, because you don't want a nice acoustic guitar when you're working out. You want something that's got yeah, some, you know, some drive. It moves you, you know, and and even. You know, I have a, a preteen daughter. She likes to take her little Alexa into the into the bathroom and listen to sad songs while she showers. And she says she just <laughs> cries. You know, she yeah. listens to these Louis Capaldi or whatever. Right. And she cries, you know, over breakups that she's never had and over boyfriends <laughs> she's never had. And, you know, and yeah. she doesn't really even know why, you know, but she's yeah. there's some emotion that she's she's getting out. And I, um, I've encouraged her, you know, make every other or every third song a Christian song because you're like I did when I was young, I kind of programmed myself with these kind of songs and these ballads and these movies. And you start to move yourself to believe a certain thing about love or life or whatever. But um, that's the key too, is Christian isn't a genre. It's a focus. Yes. Does this point you to Jesus? And I can, you know, right off the bat, maybe name three songs that I know two of which I've confirmed with the singer herself Mm -hmm. did not have Christ in mind. Mm -hmm. And yet, no matter how many times I listen to them, I feel like I'm in a worship session. This Broken Soul and Guide You Home by Rebecca Newbel and mm. Tourniquet by Evanescence. Mm. Now you listen to anything else by Evanescence and you realize it's very hedonistic, it's very worldly, it's very self-centered and self-focused. Mm. But in that song, it's literally a, pr- a prayer for salvation during a failed suicide attempt. And she wow. literally says Christ in the song, so I think I can make a case. The other two, again, Rebecca Newbel's fantastic uh, orchestral conductor, very, very beautiful and melodious voice. But when I emailed her asking her a question, did you intend this? She is a Catholic herself. She went to USC. But what was interesting is she said, no, I actually didn't notice that, but it's great that you're getting those themes out of the music. And what's interesting is it comes from a video game about dragons fighting monkeys. Huh. <laughs> and that's, that's the whole point. If Jesus is the focus, is Jesus what you take out of it, that's right. good fruit. That's yeah. a Christian song. Yeah. Yeah, and it's Very interesting good. because, you know, it's one of those 
interesting questions because if we said like for instance like we're only going to sing the psalms yeah. you know in the church right and we just read from colossians that says hey one of the things it says was sing psalms right mm -hmm. spiritual right. songs and psalms but if you got up there dave and you started breaking out every psalm of the bible mm. There's no doubt we would be tripping out. Mm. You know, we would walk away going, what did he just say? Yeah, get some imprecatory stuff in some of the content, yeah. You know, because it's really intense. Yeah. You know, the, and, and, you know, crushing the skulls mm. of the enemy, you know. I mean, you know. Calling for justice for murdering your kids and asking God to do the same to you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And there's. there's now a, sing along, everyone. You know, there's a newer yeah. worship song out there. It's called uh, Defender, and I've done it. And I really enjoy the the the, the song, the tune yeah. of it, yeah. you know. And I love the words, too. And, he, mm -hmm. and the person who writes it, she or he, takes King David uh, slaying Goliath. Yeah. You know, and, right. and it has this this verbiage of, you know, you, you come back with the head of my enemies. Yeah. yeah and I love it. I mean, I yeah. think it's great in the sense of I, I you know, it makes me think of, you know, <laughs> God conquering our enemies, yeah. you know, that he's going to conquer all of our enemies, all of our struggles, all of our greed, all of our yuck, all of our lust, all of our, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So to me, there's a beautiful aspect to that. But, you know, I mean, singing that publicly. Yeah. You know, it's controversial. Yeah, someone might come into the church who's never been in the church before, and they're like, "What are they? What are they? <laughs> what are they talking about?" Yeah, you know, this is pretty intense. Yeah, you know, so, um, and, and there's there's many psalms that are super more intense than that. Yeah, you know, so, um, it really challenges the person, you know, uh, you know, the Christian to go, "Hey, that's right." You know, right. okay, so we know not all the psalms are probably appropriate per mm -hmm. se, mm -hmm. or maybe maybe they're- And not all worship songs are exclusive to the book of Psalms. Habakkuk 3, as you mentioned, Exodus chapter 15, I believe, and the doxologies filled through the New Testament, the yeah. doxology study of ancient hymns. Yeah, many songs in the Bible. Yeah. Moses, Song of Moses, Song of Hannah. Uh, David wrote a song about Jonathan and Saul I just went through in the yeah, book of Samuel. Samuel yeah. yeah, I mean, there's there's psalms all throughout the scriptures, mm. you know. Um, and so obviously, um, very good. Music is therapy, no doubt about it. There's a lot of important things about music. The question mm. is, is why I find fascinating is why is music so impactful? Mm. And that's maybe for another show. Yeah. you know, for yeah. sure. But yeah. but great question. Yeah, very good. Thank you. Very good indeed. Um, there was a question that we had uh, from yesterday, and it was based around, well, will there be animals in hell, but also kind of what will hell be like? What will there be in hell? Yeah. Do we have any have image? Big animals. <laughs> big animals, <laughs> yeah, with big teeth. Every, yeah. every animal is going to look like that. Uh, remember we all grew up on that book, or I did anyway. It was called like uh, the kid who dreams and he goes into monster land. Yeah. He ends up being the king of the monsters, you know. It's going to be like it's that. It's like when I think of those big monsters. <laughs> no, yeah. Uh, when it comes to what hell is like obviously the last place you should be going is the divine comedy dante alighieri himself clarified this is not divine scripture any more than the apocrypha it was just a poetic observation about the afterlife given italian culture and background and you're talking about dante yeah dante alighieri dante's inferno as it's oftentimes called but the divine comedy is a three-part sonnet which the first is the inferno then 
paradise and so on and so forth. But when we're talking about what hell is like, the passage you're referencing, Nina, in reference to worms, uh, there's also a parallel passage in Matthew, but in Mark chapter 9 and verse 48, Jesus says, where their worm does not die, nor is their fire quenched. And I think the best way to understand Jesus's point is not just to read the whole passage in context. We can do that if you'd like, but to notice the ownership of that worm. You see, in Mark 9 and in Matthew as well, Jesus has made one of the three illustrations he's used as a point of comparison to what hell is. The first and the most significant, I think, that we associate it with is in Revelation 20, where it's described as a lake of fire. Now, I've been to lakes and I've interacted with fire. Seeing the two together would be very unpleasant. Likewise, there's another description Jesus uses in the gospel accounts multiple times, describing it as outer darkness, a total separation from light and isolation. That is another use of uh, pictures and words to describe the state of separation from God, the second death, as it's called, death meaning separation. The third is this one, and it's actually the earliest one. It was a reference to what was literally the garbage dump of Jerusalem, Gehenna, or the Valley of Hinnom. It used to be a beautiful place, not to say hell was, but note the comparison. It was a place where human sacrifice was performed in order to appease Solomon's many wives. And when they sacrificed these children in idolatrous practices, it eventually caught up with them, and the consequences were they had to spend 70 years in exile in Babylon. When they came back, they learned their lesson. They weren't going to do that again. So they not only tore down all the high places, as they were called, terms for pagan altars, but they also specifically converted places associated with what they understood now as great evil and made it so that no one would even want to touch those areas again unless they had to. And so Gehenna, or the Valley of Hinnom, was this picture of just a place you did not want to go. It was stinky. It was full of a, const, yeah, a constant uh, state of rotting, all the dead bodies and animals and stuff that they'd throw there if they weren't given proper Jewish burials. It was associated with that rot, with that constant burning to dispose of the garbage and waste, and, of course, of decay. And that's the picture of that worm, that the creatures causing this rot, this stink, aren't going away. You know, we kind of take for granted sometimes that a fly has a 48-hour lifespan, and, you know, we usually spend three-quarters of it trying to kill it ourselves, but the point being made is the cause of the rot, the ownership of that rot is their worm, your worm, will not die. Your fire will not be quenched. That state of destruction, that's the same point that's being made. Uh, C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, and other essays and letters as well, used an illustration to describe hell in that answering the question, is this symbolic or is this literal, a, a literal lake of fire? I personally would take the position that this is symbolic, and he says you better hope it's, uh, it's literal, because if it is symbolic, a symbol is intended to communicate something that we can't understand with something we can now, note the common parallels and themes here, Nina. What does separation from God entail? Darkness, total separation from light and isolation, not something you voluntarily participate in unless you're going to a cave diving experience or something. Generally, people get unnerved <laughs> by that. Second is a lake of fire. Made the joke already, so I won't repeat it. And the third is a garbage dump. Again, not uh, the usual field trip, although nowadays I think that would be preferable. The point being made is this. 
When we're looking at what hell is described as, Nina, the one and main focus of what makes it not good is the same focus inverted of what makes heaven good. And as far as religions are concerned, Bo, you can maybe affirm this or deny it, we are told an abysmally low amount of the glories of heaven compared to other world religions. I mean, Islam can't go into enough detail about comparing it to a brothel, right? And, you know, Saibalba, that, that goes into livid detail about hell and ancient Mayan paganism and so forth, the underworld and the Egyptian Book of the Dead and Greek and, uh, you know, African mythologies. All these things are going into a lot of these details. When it comes to what we know about heaven and hell, one thing matters on both ends. Heaven is with Jesus. Hell, what's it like there? Jesus isn't there. Now note, there are passages like Revelation chapter 14 where it notes that those who receive the mark of the beast in particular, but those who will be separated from God, are tormented in the presence of the Lamb. But there's a note of point about that. In the book of James, we note, every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights, in whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. When you are separated from God, you're basically subjected to God's glory, whether you like it or not. That's just the ongoing reality of existence. You can't escape infinity. But the fact that you're in a state of wrath before him rather than mercy is what makes that internal state of anguish. Because notice, the Bible never uses the word torture to describe hell. It uses torment, an internal state of anguish, from the fact that you're in the presence of someone that you hate, that you want nothing to do with, that someone whose beauty and majesty just grinds on you. I, to my shame, can associate people I've met in high school that would be associated with this. When they seem to, you know, be doing something even decent and acceptable, doing their jobs properly. I'd want to undercut it or just distance myself from it entirely because that person was there. <laughs> well, understand, an eternal state resisting, hating, and despising the source of everything good inverts that. And knowing that God has made a provision, a means of respect for you, not to unleash your anguish and hatred and animus of God on all those around you, he is able to quarantine you and everyone who shares your nature of rebellion against God from those who want to enjoy him. We call that hell. Now, as far as there being animals designed for hell, that's no more true than there being people designed for hell. Animals aren't moral agents. They follow instinct, not ethics. But if, on the other hand, we look at what Scripture lays out for us in people, the state we call hell, in Matthew 25 in particular, states it was, it was prepared for the devil and his angels. Why? Rebellion. They don't want God. They don't want that state of fellowship with God that they were created for. He gives them a means of provision and provides that open door, or rather closed door, to anyone who likewise doesn't want that fellowship. So understand that, Nina, and make sure that we don't get this pagan underworld-esque picture of what <laughs> hell is like. The reality is there is one thing and one thing only that should motivate you for heaven and dissuade you from hell, the person of Jesus. That should always be what you take away from Scripture. Mm. I don't want to go there. Jesus is in the other place. Mm. Yeah, Nina, a very fascinating question, too. I think it's one that kind of comes up, especially through our entertainment of our movies, you know, I think of like the popular Lord of the Rings series, 
you know, when you see kind of demonic kind of entities, you know, riding on horses or things like that, we mm -hmm. tend to kind of go, whoa, man, uh, you know, what is the after, you know, it's what the is evil horse? Yeah. Is there going to, it's the evil horse, you know, that kind of idea, yeah. you know, the four horsemen and, you know, and, and things like that. I think it's good always to go back to what we do know about animals. You know, God created the, uh, animals and he said it was good. Um, and, um, and I think we have to remember that, that, you know, when God created uh, the animal kingdom, uh, whether it's the insect or the warm-blooded creature, uh, you know, he, they were subjected to futility, mm -hmm. meaning they were subjected. Romans 8 tells us that the whole creation was subjected to the fall, mm -hmm. you know, of um, Adam and Eve. Mm -hmm. and, and so that isn't, you know, animals, per, animals' purpose is to be a good thing. And so, you know, I rely on that. I can't see um, God like creating creatures and going, okay, I'm creating them to go hang out in hell. You know, that doesn't sound yeah. like the God of the Bible at all. Um, no. And create us for hell either. Right, right, right. So, you know, animals are created and they are called good and they have, they have been brought underneath the fall um, meaning they are, they face the ramifications of the fall of mm. humans. And, um, and I would imagine in the restoration, what the Bible calls the restoration of all things, animals, you know, are a part of that, you know, restorative part, just as the yeah. creation mm. of the stars and, you know, everything, the galaxies, everything. Yeah. yeah read Isaiah 11. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so a big thing I hear you saying is that, what, what is that quote that you've, I've heard you say it recently, um, Memorials. I don't think it's the word life, but life is eternal no matter what state it's right. in. Right. Is it life? A death. Death is death eternal. is eternal. Right. So I think it, it it's wishful thinking to think that we'll just burn up if we don't make it to heaven. We'll just burn up. Right. Because that's not so bad. We'll just be gone. We don't know. But but um, death is eternal. Yes. You know, right. no matter what state, no matter where. Yeah. And it's there a, must be an answer for the things we've committed against God and yeah. His creation. It's a very challenging thought. Yeah. 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 yeah absolutely. Very good. Uh, a question from Yari. Uh, should we go to Bible college or seminary? Um, and how do you discern which college to go to? There's so many false teachers. and Yeah, I listened to views, a Reason so. for Hope yesterday, and I thought Pastor Scott kind of touched on this a little yeah, bit. The, the financial advice for someone wanting to go to mm. seminary, but as far as discernment as to why, it's kind of in tandem, obviously. The question is, for what purpose are you going to this fill-in-the-blank field of education? When people go to trade schools, it's usually because they want to develop and practice a trade. They don't just want to be the neighborhood handyman that has electrician under their belt. They actually want to pursue a field in electricity. Well, if you're called, and this is why I study Islam, to minister to people in a particular field, it's good to be informed in those departments. But to just pursue education for its own sake, there's a risk in that, in that knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. So when we talk about, you know, which seminaries do you recommend, <laughs> the names are changing all the time. If you're going, uh, what field of study do you recommend in seminary? 
depends what you're doing in ministry. I myself am not a seminary grad or attendee. I'm studying Greek on my own and am in the company of many renowned Greek scholars, i.e. my dad. He can check my work. But the point being made is just that. If you're pursuing an area of education, the question isn't just what you're doing, it's why. If you feel called to pursue seminary and the particular classes pertaining to godliness, make sure that there is some purpose for that beyond just bragging rights, that you actually have a field of ministry this is equipping you for. And also note as well, why put down the money when you can access that education for free? Even then, there's individuals and ministries, uh, names I won't mention because they're changing again all the time, but people who are willing to offer classes on a payment basis on their own, one I attend is uh, Jay Smith and Fander, uh, Fander's uh, Films is the name of the ministry, but P-F-A-N-D-E-R, uh, because their outreach to Islam is very thorough, it's very accurate, and it's very meaningful. And noting it also helps in this broadcast tab that under the belt, I also make sure I'm taking in a lot of input on answering Bible questions. I didn't go to seminary for it, but I surround myself with people who I trust, who I can verify the information through in a very straightforward manner, and that you're all obviously, or at least hopefully, being blessed by. So should you attend seminary? The question is why. Why are you doing that? What is it setting you up for? Is it to further equip you for what God's already called you to do? Or is it just to have something under your belt that doesn't necessarily have to be there? Yeah, and and I think a lot of times when it comes to education like that, you know, it really depends on the person, um, meaning what how they learn. Um, some people really need a classroom environment to be able to right. learn things. And for some reason, their brain just works that way. Mm-hmm. Um, they just can't seem to get it done mm-hmm. if they don't. Um, other people, uh, and, and Sean's so right, today there is so much information out there. There's so many ministries that offer things at relatively low cost. Mm-hmm. Um, you can pretty much uh, gain an amazing education literally at very little or no cost, mm-hmm. but you have to be disciplined and motivated. Um, I, I would suggest to anybody who wants to get involved with ministry is first get involved in your church um, and start serving in your church mm-hmm. uh, right off the bat. So if you want to get involved in a seminary, go to your church, say, I want to serve in, your, in the church, and um, go do children's ministry for maybe a year. And, and, and I think if you do children's ministry for a year, um, you'll find out really quick, you know, (laughs) just where you're at as far as your service for the Lord. Mm -hmm. And if you still want to serve the Lord and you go, man, I really do love Jesus and I love this serving the Lord thing. And man, I'm doing it, you know, not for a pat on the back because the kids can't give you (laughs) really too much. They can't reach. (laughs) They can't. That's right. (laughs) Then then you're probably going to really enjoy seminary and get a lot out (laughs) of it, you know? Um, But if you do it the other way, Mm -hmm. um, you might be in for a super rude awakening, you know, when you get out of seminary and you get into uh, just the nuts and bolts of serving the Lord. Right. Very good. Very good. Thank you. Thank you for that, uh, that question, Yari. And Talon as well, I think, from from yesterday. Um, we have a question. How do you determine the biblical canon apart from the authority of the church? So biblical canon being basically it was decided at some point what books made it into the Bible and what didn't. Really? How is that? <laughs> I mean, that's the, that's the opinion. Yeah, yeah apparently. Um, yeah. How, does, how is that determined? There's, you know, obviously Catholics have 
these other books and certainly other religions do as well. So how is that decided what the Bible that we have, the books in there, how has that been decided what made the cut? Yeah, uh, it wasn't decided. It was recognized. That's the first thing to remember. Second, canon is not like a military canon. It's a measuring stick. Does right. it measure up to the standard? Uh, when it comes to determining anything, anything in biblical truth, it should never be based on one verse. It should be a series of verses that consistently lay out a solid pattern. So if you come to someone and says, hey, this verse says, therefore, we're going to base our ministry on that, kind of sketchy. Uh, we're going to ask why are certain books treated as the Bible books as opposed to other books that are just history, even recognized by the Bible, but not necessarily a part of it. The book of Jasher is a good example of that. What is the difference between a book of history like 1 Maccabees and a book of biblical history like Genesis, Exodus, and Numbers? Well, the answer is laid out for us in the books themselves. First of all, in Deuteronomy chapter 13, and this is verses 1 through 5, and Deuteronomy 18, verses 18 through 22, we're given what is essentially the standard of Moses. The first man in history that God used to reveal himself in writing became the model for how they would judge prophets, people who spoke on behalf of God going forward. And the writings of prophets that would also affirm, this is not me speaking, this is from God, would be held to that standard. And what is that? Well, again, note the passages referenced in Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18, Deuteronomy 34 as well. It gives us the description of Moses' legacy and what the canon was from that point onward for a prophet, first they would be accurate in their information. If you sign or a wonder comes to or is proclaimed by a prophet but does not come to pass, you shall not be afraid of them, but you're going to take them out back and we'll get to that in a minute. So that one cut mustard. Yeah. So if it gets <laughs> the facts right. Now note, not as far as, well, I don't like that, therefore it's false. Or these scientists who can't decide on what to eat for breakfast this morning have decided that this is false. No, I mean, given the information that is presented to us and what we can test, is it true? Is it um, tested as falsifiable and isn't? Does he get its facts straight? Because if God's speaking, he's not going to not know things, right? He's going to know things. It's the double negative. The second standard for biblical canonicity is, is it not only accurate in the information, but is it consistent in the information it gives? That's Deuteronomy 18 and note, let us go after other gods. Or if someone as close to you as your own soul says, let us go after other gods, you shall not listen to them. You shall not be afraid of them. The Lord your God is testing you to know that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. If they claim the name of God, but are preaching another Jesus, Galatians 1 style, right? Another gospel. Then you're not to regard that as authentic. Now, note new information can be given, but not contradictory information, meaning that God's not going to be perfect in justice and then tell you, like he does in Enoch, that you can, oh, well, just uh, understand that these, uh, these, the intercession of these angels will just make me kind of turn a blind eye to you on that. That would be conflict in concept. That would be a inconsistent view of God. So accuracy and consistency. The third is that, and we see this throughout scripture, they would back up God's words with deeds. That every time someone was to speak in the name of God, they'd have to verify their right to be taken seriously with public miracles. Now note, this can be in the form of the writings themselves, predictive prophecy, 
like Jeremiah and Ezekiel did, both within and outside of their lifetimes. You obviously can't test prophecies outside of their lifetimes, but you look at the uh, Isaiah 7 prophecy, for instance, him predicting to the day that this would be when the Syrian Empire would fall. That's what established his credibility. Why, oh, you did see the Lord. You, the Lord is talking here. We need to understand that as well as far as the New Testament is concerned because that's why the apostles were also taken seriously. We talked about this in Acts chapter 3 just last Sunday and talking about their healing of the lame man. That was the only reason they were listening to what they had to say about Jesus. When Jesus started claiming that he was the Messiah, the anointed one of Daniel 9, he was performing miracles. And he notes, don't believe me, believe the works for their own sake. He affirmed that standard of canonicity. And the fourth is accountability. If someone's going to claim the words of God, they would be accountable to the people of God. A false prophet didn't get a slap on the wrist. Mm. They weren't handed over to the judges you see in the United States today who will let off a terrorist with a $1,000 bond, meanwhile uh, throw people into prison who were literally escorted in by police. If you know what I'm talking about, good for you. The point being made is this. When we're talking about whether or not someone is claiming to speak in the name of God, reveal things about God, and they're lying, that's treated on par with spiritual mass murder. You're deceiving people and leading them away from God to a fake God, and they're not to be listened to. So when it comes to the 39 books of the Old Testament, and this is also key, who is the judge for that? Who decided that those were the books that we were to listen to? And the answer is given to us in Romans chapter 3 and verse 1. What advantage then has the Jew, or what advantage then is circumcision? Much in every way. For to them it was committed the oracles, the interceders, or the the mediators of God, someone who would speak on behalf of him. So when it comes to our standard for the Old Testament and what would then be applied as well to the new, we ask the question, do they stand up to the standard that was laid down by Moses that God demonstrated through this man who, according to Deuteronomy 34, was not only speaking to God face to face as a man speaks with his friend, but also perform signs and wonders in the presence of Israel. We see this pattern affirmed. We see these doctrines affirmed, both in writing and in example. We see this laid out in Scripture, and then we ask the question, is that what lines up with new information? Obviously, when you look at the Roman Catholic Bible, you see 1st through 5th Enoch, Tobit, Maccabees, 1st and 2nd Maccabees, and so forth. Does it measure up to the canon, the standard? Mm -hmm. Well, it doesn't. In 2nd Maccabees, there's a historically false claim, no matter what way you slice it, where it identifies Nebuchadnezzar as king of Assyria. That is false. He was the king of Babylon. The good news is, and why Maccabees wasn't thrown out in its entirety, was the authors never claimed to be divinely inspired scripture. If they did, they'd be dismissed as false prophets and stoned to death. But if, on the other hand, they simply claimed to be recording first Maccabees anyway, the events that surround Hanukkah, as we call it today, the festival mm -hmm. of lights, the mm -hmm. tyranny of the Hellenistic Empire during the second century, then we could say, oh, well, little error there, but we can take at face value the fact that this information is valid, but it's not biblical history. The Jews themselves affirm that. Enoch was not written by Enoch. So if that's meant to be taken as a divine claim, then it's either a lie or we're going to need some Mongo signs to note this is actually information about the seventh descendant from Adam. And that's in Genesis chapter 5, if you want to look it up. Or is it 4? 5. 5, thank you. I think the, 4. 
Four was about uh, Cain and Abel, right? Yeah. The point being made, though, is just that. When we're talking about Enoch and the events within it, there's not only a lot of weird stuff in it, but there's outright blasphemous concepts, inconsistent pictures of God. For example, and the most prominent of which is that it claims that Enoch is the Messiah, not Jesus of Nazareth. Mm. So that's out. We can go on and note in Tobet and the additional chapters that they edit uh, into the book of Esther and in uh, Daniel. We can talk about the fact that Tobit was not written by Tobit and that the information within it is very contradictory to very plain statements in Scripture promoting idolatrous practices that, note, would have been acceptable in the northern ten tribes of Israel during their apostasy, but were not accurate pictures and teachings of the true and living God, let alone the Archangel Raphael, who doesn't exist. The point being made is that, though. We need to know the standard, we need to test the standard, we need to apply the standard consistently. And even the early church fathers, as they're oftentimes quoted as on affirmation of this, knew the difference between Scripture and between just writings. In fact, none of them would affirm or put any credence to the books of the Apocrypha, the concealing is what it's called, until the 15th century A.D. So you ask the question then, why did it take so long for them to forget they left out a fifth of the Old Testament? And the answer is they didn't. They were put into a corner basically for political issues and were willing to play fast and loose with God's word to get out of basically a political accountability, which we know plenty of in our day and age. So people with power want to hold on to it. They don't really uh, care about the truth after a certain point. But that is the point. The canonicity of the Bible is determined by the Bible. Not that the Bible says it, therefore it settles it. It's circular logic, a self-affirming book. No, it lays out its standards and then follows them. And if anyone else is going to claim to be in the group, then at least let it stand up to what the group itself wrote and claimed about itself to be itself, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yep. Um, Anything to add to that, book? Um, you know, I, I, I just was looking at, you know, the book of Hebrews as you were talking, Sean, and I find it uh, so fascinating and so so neat. It, it t- tells us to pay more careful attention to those things which we have heard and it talks about, um, you know, how shall we, we escape punishment if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. And God also testified to it uh, by signs and wonders, mm. various miracles. You're seeing um, the theme there. Yeah, and, and, and it kind of spoke to what you were saying there. Um, but I think what you have to always remember is that, um, you know, canons are... You know, people make up canons, you know, like meaning, meaning, uh, you know, different, different people can get together and say, hey, we're an authority, you know, and there's been plenty of people in our day and age who have gotten together as authorities, Mm -hmm. you know, and said, hey, we know the Bible and we're going to put our canon together, you know, and, 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 you know, and they say whatever they say, Mm -hmm. you know, produced by the messianic class. Yeah. You know, it's. But so, you know, when, when we say like, oh, it was canonized by this group, you know, mm. well, you always have to remember that there's many different groups that can claim authority and call something, you know, you know, accurate or not or whatever mm-hmm. their claims are, whatever their measuring tools are. But we have to go off of what the scripture says, yeah. you know, and that's what 
that's what Sean's getting at is we're just recognizing what the scripture says about itself. Yeah. You know, there's nothing new. And I think that's a great point that you make that you always have to remember is that if there's an authority that comes on the scene and says, Hey, we're making a new canon, yep. you know, we're, we're going to put our, you know, intellect to it, mm-hmm. you know, and it's something that goes against already something that's been revealed. Then mm-hmm. it's something that has to be, we have to question it yeah. and kind of go, Hmm, that doesn't make much sense. Doesn't measure up. Yeah. Jesus didn't come to do something like to abolish the writings of Moses. He came to fulfill it, he says. And so anything Jesus or the apostles taught is not against already everything right. that's been written. Yeah. You know? So it's not like some authority fig, you know, group needed to get together and say, oh my God, you know, this is what's really in and this is what's really out. No, it's already been established. Yeah. It's already been down. Yeah. You know? Um, there's nothing new, right. you know, everything's, everything that's in the new Testament is already things that have been spoken in the old Testament, yep. you know? So, and that's the neat thing about studying the Bible. The more you read the new Testament, the more you find that almost everything in the new Testament is some kind of either direct quote, mm-hmm. or it is a inference to a part of the scripture that they had. Yeah. You know, the right. Bible they had. Yep. Yeah, so so that's why the Apocrypha that Sean's saying, that's why we have to kind of have a little bit of a question mark, red flag go up, yep. you know? You know, and and that's what I would do with anything. Yeah, yeah. same with yeah. the Book of Mormon and Doctrines and Covenants, same with whatever Hare Krishna followers read, you get yeah. the point. Yeah, mm-hmm. someone might say it's authoritative. Someone might, you know, and, and that, yeah, many, that's what humans <laughs> do. Whose authority? <laughs> that's yeah. right. What's that thing? If it's true, it isn't new, and if it's new, it isn't <laughs> right, true, right? Right, Yeah. right. So we got to go back and compare it to what Moses said. Right. You know, we got to go back and compare it to what, you know, what's in the Book of Judges, how they viewed God, or how, you know, what did, what did King David say? Yeah. You know, you know, if it doesn't measure up to that, you know, the revelation of God in, in even the Trinity is not a New Testament concept. Right. This is not New Testament stuff. Right. So, yeah. Very good. Yeah. Hopefully yeah. that helps. Yeah. And a very important comment from Marie, and then one final question if we have time. But Marie says, uh, where the wild things are. That was the oh, name of the book. Oh, yes. <laughs> okay. That's the book. Yeah. I'm like, oh, it's about this Thank kid. Thank you, Marie. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> Maybe not the most important thing we've established on the show, but it's But still... isn't it true that when you see that, you go, those are like the that, those yeah, are hell creatures. That's going you know, to be what hell's Big monsters. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Yari asked real quick. We've only got about three minutes left. But um, okay. is um, was Satan blocked from knowing Jesus would die on the cross? Does, Jay, uh, does Satan know that he's already defeated or is he is he dumb is he he's not dumb he's proud and there is mm. a very careful distinction pride in its basest form is willful self-deception now you can be very smart but you can be deceived you can be following a false narrative and if you're the one setting the narrative then obviously you're not going to think you're wrong otherwise you wouldn't have been deceived you'd be convinced so when it comes to satan's nature as a being that wants to usurp God's throne, like we read in Isaiah 28, I think it is. Uh, the point of emphasis... Ezekiel 28. Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14. Was That's correct. One. I always remember because 28 is half and 14, but I have to figure out which one it is. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, the point being made is this. Thank you to the guys who got those numbers right in the chapters. Um, 
Yeah. Satan's not stupid. He's perfect in wisdom and beauty. He's not just, you know, doing this because he signed some suicide pact with himself and decided to uh, try on God because that's the only way a cherub can get destroyed. It's because he was, uh, because iniquity was found in him because of pride. He deceived himself into thinking he was like the most high. And did he know that Jesus was going to be his demise? I would say yes, because the first prophecy in the Bible is a specific prophecy about the seed of a woman crushing Satan. Right, the proto-Evangelium. Yeah, so it's so Satan obviously knows that something, an offspring from the woman, is going to be his downfall. Right. Is going to be his crushing. Yeah. Um. So we know that. Does Satan know the word? The answer is, does he know the Bible? Yeah. Yeah. He knows yeah. it more than we do. So, he quoted it to right. Jesus during the temptation. So he must right. know Isaiah fifty-three. He must know Psalm twenty-two. He must know, you know, the good shepherd of Ezekiel. Um, But as the father of lies, he himself is not exempt from his own deception. Yeah. Um, Real quick, I think I can knock out two more here. Reynolds wanted to know, does sin exist in the lake of fire? That's all that exists in the lake of fire, Reynolds. Separation from rebellion against God. And Reynolds also wants to know, will sickness exist in the lake of fire? We won't have physical bodies in a state of separation from God. Sickness, in that sense that you're using it, is... uh, not a a biology thing. Yeah, and I would just say that Lake of Fire, definitely I would say it's iniquity that's going to be in that Lake of Fire, like Mm -hmm. specifically. Yeah, it's a spiritual state. Yeah, very good. Bo, thank you. Sean, thank you. Thank you, the viewer, for your questions and for joining us. We'll see you again tomorrow, right? Tomorrow's Wednesday. We'll be here. Thursday, Friday, we'll be out for Thanksgiving. But tomorrow, same time, same time. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.